0: Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent.
1: You know, mass surveillance I think in the longer term is going to become less and less of an issue as people encrypt more and more because they can collect encrypted communication but they can't really do that much with it. But I think what is going to become more and more of an issue is hacking. Part of the unfinished business of what we need to do around RICA is to establish a legal principle where the more invasive the form of surveillance, the more tightly it should be regulated. But hacking should concern us, because hacking is becoming the surveillance tool of choice of intelligence agencies around the world, and it's a direct response to increasing encryption.
0: This is Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I'm Dario Milo. This is the next episode in our Media Law series, which is a field that I specialize in and very much look forward to speaking about every week. Today we're going to look at surveillance, which itself is a massive topic in this day and age of surveillance capitalism, where we willingly give up our information to tech companies who mine that information to enhance their profits. But our focus today is surveillance by the state and others of journalists, activists, and others the state might perceive as troublemakers. Journalists who are working on important work run the risk of being surveyed by the government or other powerful institutions having the identities of confidential sources and whistleblowers exposed and indeed the lives of the journalists themselves and their sources placed at risk. To help me discuss this topic, I'm privileged to have on the show today in the Weber Wenzel studio in our boardroom, Sam Soule, investigative journalist and Ama managing partner. Sam has been involved in some of the country's greatest investigations, including those around state capture. Amabungane also engages in proactive litigation in the areas of openness and transparency, and we have been privileged to work with them for many years on these kinds of cases. We also have Professor Jane Duncan, who is at the Department of Journalism, Film and Television uh, at University of Johannesburg. She's also the author of the book Stopping the Spies, Constructing and Resisting the Surveillance State in South Africa. I met Jane when she was the Executive Director of the Freedom of Expression Institute. I mean, how many years ago was that? Jane? I think it was <laughs> over a decade ago. It certainly was. Certainly. And um, we also worked on a few free speech cases together, so it's great to see you again. Thank you. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Doria. Thank
2: you.
0: Sam, so maybe to start with you. Um, one of the problems with surveillance is it takes place entirely in secret. And a citizen doesn't know that he or she has been under surveillance and unless fortuitously something happens, such as a tip-off or a leak. You got a tip-off back in 2008 when you were at the Mail and Guardian that you were being spied on and that tip-off turned out to be right as, as we now know. Can you explain what happened and how it led to Amabungane's challenge of uh, the legislation?
2: Yes, look, it's a, it's a long saga. So I think uh, a- after that, we, we lodged a complaint with the Inspector General about various indications of surveillance and, and so on of, of myself and others, uh, my colleagues, France. Gromer in particular, um, at, at the M&G, it took ages uh, before we got a response from the Inspector General and the, re- the response was very unsatisfactory because they didn't even confirm whether we had been surveilled or not. They just said, we've done an investigation. We found that nothing you know, illegal was done. Um, in other words, if we were uh, surveilled, then the Inspector General felt it had been done uh, in terms of the precepts of the law. Then, around the time that the the spy, the spy tapes saga came out, uh, again we had very good information that among uh, the people who had been captured on on, on the spy tapes um, by either crime intelligence or or, or the uh, National Intelligence Agency uh, were conversations involving mm-hmm. myself um, and but also others uh, other conversations involving, for instance, the editor that then edited The Mail and mm-hmm. Guardian, Ferrell Hafejee, etc. But again, we were never able to mm-hmm. prove that. Prove that. The, the, the breakthrough, in a sense, came courtesy of uh, <laughs> uh, former President uh, Jacob Zuma, attached to one of his interminable uh, efforts to uh, challenge and delay the, the, the prosecution process. And in that case, I think challenged the, the DA's attempt to have the, uh, the spy tapes uh, unlocked and released and, and so on. His, his attorney, Michael Halley, attached a transcript to their affidavit um, of my conversations back in 2008 with advocate Billy Downer, who was the lead prosecutor in the Sheik case at that time. So for the first time, we had official confirmation that uh, I had been bugged, um, we had the proof. And and so that really launched the process whereby we decided to to challenge recur because as you point out the the key flaw is that you're supposed never to find out mm-hmm. uh, that you've been bugged and that's you know that's where we brought you in and, mm-hmm. and we started this process. Jane, I mean,
0: uh, you are specialised increasingly in this field, and is there ever any? principled reason for surveillance. I mean, is surveillance justifiable at the level of principle? And is it then about the detail and the checks and balances and the mechanisms the law has to try and check abuses? Or is there a principled objection to surveillance in its entirety?
1: No, I don't believe that there is a principled Mm. objection to surveillance Mm -hmm. in its entirety. I think that there are compelling public interest grounds um, that can and should trigger surveillance. I have seen surveillance being used in order to solve important legal cases. Um, I've even seen cases being um, solved on the basis of possibly one of the most controversial forms of surveillance which is some card registration. So I don't think that we should even entertain the argument mm-hmm. that not surveilling under any circumstances is in yes. the public interest. It is in the public interest. However, I don't think that there's a principled argument for untargeted mass surveillance. And this is where things start getting quite tricky, because I think that there is an operational argument for mass surveillance. So if, for instance, mass surveillance is used of foreign signals intelligence to pick up a buildup of troops on the border, we want to know whether we're going to be invaded imminently or not. And mass surveillance could potentially pick up anomalies in communication signals on the, on the border that would then trigger um, a more detailed investigation about what exactly is going on there. Maybe I can
0: just interrupt to ask for listeners, how would you define mass or bulk surveillance?
1: I don't understand mass surveillance purely to be untargeted surveillance, so, so surveillance that isn't triggered by a reasonable suspicion of criminality on the part of an individual mm. or group of mm. individuals. That's, that's how I'd, I'd understand it, and typically it's used um, to pick up signals outside the mm-hmm. country and to generate intelligence based on analysis of those signals, so that's why we call the foreign signals yes. intelligence. That is generally what mass surveillance is used for, and typically it's used um, for signals outside the country because it is so highly invasive. And the argument is that um, people inside the country have a basket of rights and responsibilities um, that need to be very jealously protected. So therefore, it's not justified on privacy grounds and on freedom of expression mm-hmm. grounds to surveil on an untargeted basis um people inside the country, but people outside the country are fair game, right. um, we can obviously um, engage that argument. I do think it's problematic, but the other argument that's used as well, which I think is a slightly stronger argument, is that you typically don't have the same investigatory powers outside the country sure. as you do inside the country. It's a free for all out there in intelligence terms.
0: I mean, isn't one of the problems that bulk surveillance in South African law is is actually unregulated? I mean, Reca doesn't regulate the ability of the government to engage in bulk surveillance. Yet we know, and the Amabongani case has confirmed, that this takes place uh, all day and every day. I mean, Sam, what, what are your views on, on bulk surveillance, as Jane has described the problem?
2: Look, I think it, the, there's, there's no question in my mind that, that if you think carefully about it, there are ways that one could regulate it you know, to satisfy international law, and but sure. also uh, protect uh, domestic, domestic rights. I think as the problem is, as you point out, the intelligence services have taken the view that foreign signals intelligence uh it's 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 a free for all fair game Mm -hmm. uh the problem being that they define foreign signals intelligence as any communication with at least one leg outside of the country Country, yeah that's an enormous loophole because we all know that the way we communicate now through through google through facebook through whatsapp through you know um probably I, i don't know what the but but probably you know f- at least 50% of our ordinary communications sure. between South Africans is routed via servers that the, may not be, not, not be may, may not be in the country and we know from previous reports of the inspector general that they have used this loophole to do targeted surveillance mm-hmm. without a judge's permission mm-hmm. uh, so so the fact that it is unregulated is an enormous problem um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the yes. state deals with the fact that the judge has said, you just you can't You do just this. can't do
0: it. I mean, in many ways, that was for Judge Sutherland, who heard the case in the Pretoria High Court, one of the easier decisions to make, because there was no law that sought to balance the rights of the various parties. Whereas with the other uh, challenges, and we'll come to some of them now, you know, at least Rica made an attempt to try and balance uh, in, in our view and in the judge's view, and hopefully the constitutional court will confirm, the legislation didn't get that balance correct. But with bulk surveillance, mass surveillance, there's no law at all. So there's no law of general application that can be pointed to as a potential justification of infringements of privacy and expression. Jane,
1: I think in principle, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of internet do we want to leave to future generations? Um, What do we want to leave to our children in terms of um, how the internet functions? And I think at the end of the day, we need to find a way of getting back to um, the the basic principles of the internet as an open and accessible medium that operates on the basis of net neutrality. And I think we need to protect the internet as a free and open space and as a democratizing force. The more that we weaponize the internet, the more that we securitize it and turn it into a set of walled gardens that may even in in time to come lead to a balkanized internet, so several internets, the more we move away from the founding principles of what the internet should be. Mm. Bulk surveillance of foreign signals actually comes out of the military. It was developed particularly during the Second World War with the code breaking that took place particularly by the US and the UK. And out of that was developed the UK-USA agreement that in turn led to the the establishment of possibly the most um, significant um, intelligence sharing arrangement that exists in the world today, which is the Five Eyes um, Alliance. Now, we must bear in the back of our minds that that comes out of a military environment Mm -hmm. and it is contributing towards the weaponizing of the internet. If we cannot enjoy the internet without the knowledge that we can communicate safely, securely and openly and have our communications intercepted only under the most extreme but well-defined set of circumstances, we cannot say. Um, that we have an open and democratic internet. Mm. Now, I know that the struggle against mass surveillance is going to be long and hard, and it's going to have to be fought on the global stage, but I think that we have a responsibility to fight it, and the fact that we cannot even possibly start to hope to compete with the Five Eyes Alliance in, in in terms of global mass surveillance I think also places on us um, a responsibility to fight against it on the global stage.
0: And Sam, I mean, if we can look in a bit more detail at Amabongane case and some of the innovations that um, Sutherland has accepted and that hopefully the Constitutional Court will accept, post-surveillance notification, which is, it seems to me, certainly best practice around the world, is something that Sutherland accepted and we hope the Constitutional Court will accept. Why is that so powerful? When the surveillance has already happened and and you know one could argue the privacy infringement has already taken place so what good does it do to be told about it after the event
2: look it it's it's very important because we accepted and and i think in, in, our, in our case we, we very much accepted jane's principal point that surveillance in principle is justifiable yes. in the public interest the problem is it it is enormously open to abuse because it it allows the state and other actors, you know, direct access into people's lives, their private lives, their secrets, their vulnerabilities, etc. And so to have a situation where um, the state is able to do that, and even other parties are able to do that, and you never know that they've done it. Mm -hmm. So you, you never know what information is held by the state, what they do with it, how they share it, how they protect it, etc. Et um, your most, you know, intimate per, per, personal secrets, etc. Et I was, you know, I was monitored for about six six months, uh, during which time I'm sure I had some, you know, embarrassing uh, phone <laughs> calls with my wife and my children, or what, what, whatever. Yes. So the, the the fact that you can never test that, and never on some basis reclaim control over sure. that. Because you don't it's, know what's happened is, to is, those. It's crucial, yes. Th- that um, database. Where there's a situation where they have reached a point where, you know, uh, the, the operation is complete um, or the, the dangerous past, there seems to be no logical reason, that's what we argued, that at some point uh, you have to notify people that they have been surveilled so that if they are completely in an innocent party, they can then approach the courts and seek relief.
0: Yes, and I was encouraged by Judge Sutherland's um, comment that one of the things they could do, for instance, is claim damages for the breach of their privacy, even ex post facto. Jane, do you agree with the post-surveillance notification principle?
1: Definitely, yes. And I think it's become accepted internationally yeah. increasingly. I think it's, it's absolutely essential for transparency because you can enforce your rights um, if you were surveilled um, not on, on proper grounds.
0: I mean, the other striking aspect of the judgment, which was um, welcomed um, around the world, is the fact that it talks about a higher threshold where you want to survey journalists and lawyers. I mean, Jane, in your research, is there empirical evidence to suggest that there is widespread surveillance, say, of journalists in South Africa, worldwide, or are in- incidents like Sam's an isolated incident uh, instance where you know there isn't a widespread practice of surveying journalists?
1: It's an impossible question mm. to answer empirically, at least in South Africa at the moment, precisely because we don't have the levels of Correct. transparency that um, post-surveillance user notification will bring. We do know of Sam's case. We do know of Rika being abused. In the case of two other um, journalists, former Sunday Times journalists, Stefan Hofstetter and Zilla Africa, yes. where the, the judge was actually lied to. Um, yes. in order to dupe him into granting an interception direction. So we certainly do know of those cases. And I think the fact that we know of those cases, I think yes. um, is um, should be sufficient grounds for alarm and concern, also given the global picture as well, that journalists are vulnerable groups. Lawyers are vulnerable groups.
0: Again, what Judge Sutherland is not saying is you can never survey a lawyer or a journalist, but he's saying that that fact has to be communicate it to the designated judge. The circumstances in which you want to survey a journalist and a lawyer or or a lawyer have to be made, have to be put forward, and um, the judge has to be alive to that. And why are we surveying a journalist? Why are we surveying a lawyer? Uh, Are they intricately connected with the crime? Is it uh, personal criminal behavior on their part that we're targeting? Uh, and, and and it allows for that additional safeguard, that that additional discussion. But why limited to lawyers and journalists? What about this is an argument, for example, that media monitoring make in in this case as amicus? What about NGOs being under surveillance? Any views on that, Sam and, and Jane? Is it too limited to say only lawyers and journalists should be singled out for this additional safeguard?
2: Look, I think you're probably more qualified to answer that question than than, than us, uh, Daria. But but I mean, I think the the key thing with with lawyers and journalists is the duty of priv- privilege that is breached by surveillance and the harm that 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 can do and and with regard to to journalists, especially the identification of sources, which is very easy if you only have to look at uh, at metadata records and, and and so on and which can be uh, have a huge mm. chilling effect again that you may not even know about um, if if my communications mm. are, are monitored and I'm cultivating a confidential source, somebody can just pitch up at that person's house and just tell them, look, you know, we know you're talking to Sam, etc. And 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 I I may never know about that. They they just may not stop returning my calls, etc.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the law at least says in those instances, certainly for lawyers, legal privilege is since time immemorial regarded as a almost impenetrable privilege, although there are exceptions as there should be, and journalist sources and the right to protect their sources has also been recognized perhaps more recently by South African courts in the Bosasa case and others, but there are at least categories where
1: one can carve out protection because of the vulnerability, as you say, Jane. In the book that I wrote that you mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to um, interview the longest serving Rika judge, Ivan Mohoro, who um, I think gave me a lot of insight um, into how the office of the Rika judge works and her own anxiety as operating as a, a, a Rika judge. And it was clear to me from that interview that she was well aware of the fact that they could be misled. And I think she had a very strong feeling that um, that, that was a weakness herself as a judge, yes. um, having to take yes. decisions. Um, because, and it does illustrate that
0: even a judge with the reputation and the integrity of Judge Mahoro, it's not sufficient to have even a judge of that caliber in that position.
2: Uh, Daria, I think the, the case of m, m-, m- z and, yes. and Stefan illustrates yes. very, very, very clearly because uh, the judge was presented with uh, an, an affidavit. Uh, about, uh, I think, a a, a drug baron in in, in Durban and a list of numbers and and people supposedly associated with his network. And into that uh, probably legitimate surveillance exercise was inserted the numbers of of the the, the journalists. They weren't identified correctly. But the judge has no way of of telling who these people are. If it's, uh, you know, Mm. Leonard Mm. Khadebe from Omlazi and it's actually... um, uh, yes. Stefan Hofstetter from the Sunday Times, yes. he has no way of, of he or she has no. have no way of, of of telling telling, so I think uh, one of the ways we tried to address that in in the litigation was to um, make the plea for a public advocate, Correct. in other words, so that this happens behind closed doors, it's ex parte, but it is uh, to some extent a uh, an adversarial process uh, in front of the judge. The panel of judges is is I think also important because. What we found, and and I think it would be nice to hear from, from from Jane, is the intelligence environment is one which is very susceptible to institutional capture. You know, it's it's confidential. You're being let into secrets. It's mm. this institution that you're being allowed. Uh, you know, as and, and, and this applies not only to the to the judge, but also to. Um, the parliamentary oversight yes. co- committee as as
0: well so there's some level of accountability either for mistakes bona fide mistakes or in fact for the deliberate misleading that we saw in the Sunday times case
2: I- I- exactly if there's post surveillance no- notification then there is at least a risk that if you lie to the judge it's going to be exposed Correct. and and that obviously has a has an effect a disciplining effect on the quality of the of the applications
1: And I think this is important because just to touch on the broader point that Sam raised, you know, the intelligence environment is a notoriously secretive environment. Mm. It's too secretive. Um, It's far too secretive for its own good. And I mean that quite literally, that its own good um, is damaged by the level of secrecy, not only because of the, the corruption that it engenders, but it turns the intelligence community into an echo chamber that is susceptible to confirmation bias. So in other words, they listen to themselves and only to themselves, and everybody else don't know anything about intelligence. They just simply yes. have to trust yes. um, that the spooks who sit there in the State Security Agency and Crime Intelligence and other places know what they're doing. So, so they, they spin this narrative of trust us. And I think that that prevents important ideas from being subjected to the furnace of public debate. And I think if that happened more... Not necessarily at an operational level, because mm. I think we'd probably both accept that there are there are sound reasons for mm. um, for secrecy on operational methods, but unfortunately they conflate operational policies with operational methods, and for me, strategy and policy should automatically, as a default position, be in the public be domain and be sub- mm. subjected to the furnace of of, of public public opinion and um, that won't threaten operational methods. In fact, it will strengthen operational methods because then they go into their work on the understanding or in the confidence that they have identified the major threats to national security and security more generally um, appropriately in the country rather than falling victim to what often happens in the intelligence community which is to talk up th- threats in order to get big budgets yes
0: and there's of course an analog with classified information right there's this the default uh, position adopted in intelligence circles that just because it's classified you can't touch it you can't possess it you can't distribute it one of the major balancing mechanisms for that kind of legislation, the Protection of State Information Board, would be a public interest type defence because one of the lessons, I think, from our constitutional court is to say in national security cases like the Massettler case that it dealt with, Judge Sutherland's decision on um, RICA, is that courts are not hesitating to actually say to the executive, where necessary, where appropriate, we will step in and we won't be cowed by the shout of or the, the noise of national security. In a kind of crowded courtroom as if that is the answer to all the problems. So there's certainly far more of a nuanced balancing that's required
1: and I I think that's absolutely right. And we're very fortunate as a country because we don't face any major threats to national security at the moment, touch wood. But at the moment we don't, which means that um, we have fewer reasons, fewer sound reasons to be able to give that margin of appreciation (laughs) to our security agencies and we must use that to the maximum and support our courts um, in, in in fighting a back, a back against this national security mystification. Uh, Sam, I, you agree?
2: I, I, I want to come in and, and really support Jane yes. there. You know as, as as an investigative journalist and as journalists often we trade in some of the same waters as, as the intelligence services. Um, we, we, we trade in information. The the difference is our, our information and our conclusions are put out there uh, to, to to stand the test of, mm. of of peer review, whatever information that that we can dig up in the public interest, we we, we publish and we subject it to the the, the light of, the light of day. And I think one of the you know one of the real weaknesses and where intelligence services globally um, mm. I think damage themselves. One of the other areas where there's 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 a lot of uh, and our own history has has shown that a, 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 a lot of risk is national security becomes conflated with the security and interests of the leader um, or, or the uh, particular party. Whoever or the incumbent the, or the, happens to the, be. Or the, or the faction. Mm. Um, and that has, you know, you know historical uh, precedence from, from the early days. I think, you know, the, the king's advisor was there to protect the king, yes. not, not, you know, not to protect the state.
1: I think there's also a global tendency as well. We need to take Mm. um, note of um, shifts in intelligence and how it's used, Mm. away from focusing on national security threats only, to focus on national security interests. So in other words, um, countries aren't just focusing on threats, they're focusing on interests. Including economic interests. Including economic Mm. interests. And one of the most problematic areas of intelligence work that we haven't even started to have a public discussion about is economic intelligence. And the ways in which it's used in order to legitimise spying on diplomats, um, spying on uh, politicians in order to um, get to their trade secrets, their negotiating positions in, um, you know, in world trade negotiations. The way it's being used to legitimise espionage as well, and also the increasing privatisation of of intelligence responsibilities.
0: And that's a it's an excellent point, Jane, and I mean it also triggers my final topic, which is really that, you know, even if we succeed in fixing RICA and if Parliament succeeds in fixing RICA in due course, of course, we're quite aware of the fact that surveillance happens illegally as well. So you could have surveillance uh, in terms of RICA, but there's lots of unlawful surveillance by the state, by state actors, by non-state actors. Technology such as grabbers are available. And, you know, journalists in particular face these kinds of threats, not just from the state. And Sam, I wondered for rookie journalists who might be listening to the podcast, uh, what practical advice have you got for them to ensure that they enhance the ability to keep their communications confidential so that they don't have to rely necessarily on RICA being fixed, but can rely on their own practices and processes?
2: You kind of maintain communication hygiene, as it were. Yes. You're careful about what you say electronically. Um, you're careful about how you communicate to sources you careful about how you communicate about sources. I mean, we have uh, obviously at Ambungani, we we have uh, chat chat groups about different subjects, at which we, you know where we we share information. We work in different places uh, around the country, but even within our WhatsApp chat, which is probably reasonably secure, might be you know uh, we we would always give sources a, a code name, so right. we we'll refer to you know. Uh, Joe blogs or, or whatever you know the one that connects. Sure. We, we met in the in the wimpy or you know, yes. that that kind of thing. So that e- even in quite what one would imagine uh, communication that is that is fair, fair got a fair degree of confidentiality. You build in uh, some some protections. Um,
0: prepare for the worst case. Prepare for the worst case. Yeah, yeah I mean and that's why Stan, it's Stan and John who are the two Gupta whistleblowers. I mean if their identities had been revealed before the publication of some of those stories. I wonder whether we would have in fact seen the extent of the Gupta leak uh, stories that we did. Jane?
1: You know, mass surveillance, I think, in the longer term is going to become less and less of an issue as people encrypt more and more because they can collect encrypted communication, but they can't really do that much mm. with it. But I think what is going to become more and more of an issue is hacking. And in fact, I'd say that one of part of the unfinished business of what we need to do around RECA Um, to establish a legal principle where the more invasive the form of surveillance, the more tightly it should be regulated, but hacking should concern us because hacking is becoming the surveillance tool of choice of intelligence agencies around the world, and it's a direct response to increasing encryption. So if the agencies know who their uh, people of interest are, who are often journalists, for instance, they're likely to practice what Sam refers to as information hygiene, Hygiene. which includes encrypting their communications and um, which is then going to drive them more towards um, hacking people's devices. Now there there are particular problems with hacking, but there are also particular opportunities as well. The problem is that um, it's a particularly pernicious, invasive form of of surveillance because um, it alters the device that you use. So if you think about the South African RECA, for instance, which says that intercept information can be accepted as evidence into court. That becomes problematic because when you hack a person's device, you can't be entirely sure whether that information hasn't been altered um, when it's presented to court. So we see in Mexico, for instance, which one could almost describe as the hacking capital of the <laughs> world, um, people's communications being intercepted through hacking, altered slightly, and then released into the public domain in order to embarrass um, a it particular. It becomes a
0: form of disinformation. It becomes a form a of, of disinformation. Combination of true and then false, you know, information.
1: Exactly. Yes. So for me, hacking, um, evidence that's obtained through hacking shouldn't actually be admitted as evidence in court as a matter of principle, but in the exceptional uh, cases where it should, then um, a forensic expert should be brought in in order to warrant that the information hasn't been altered or the, the, the device hasn't been compromised to the extent where that intercept information is polluted to the point mm. where it shouldn't be admis- admissible as evidence in court. I think this is a very good start.
0: Lots of work still to be done. Um, I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. We've run out of time, but thank you so much to my guests today, Jane Duncan and Sam Solve. It's been a fascinating discussion as always. This has been Webber Wensel Legal Insights. I've been your host Dario Milo. I'll be guiding you through this first season of podcasts on media law. Our executive producer is Paula Joans. This podcast is produced for Webber Wensel by Volume. Until next time, publish responsibly. You have been listening to Webber Wensel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit weberwenzel.com.